Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Tuesday the 29th of September and I'm joined by Jamila Rizvi, whose life has changed dramatically in the last few days. Hello, Jamila. I've got a bit of a spring in my step this morning, Tom, because yesterday my son went back to childcare and I (laughs) discovered what it's like to work a full day, not be completely behind and to be able to just walk in and out of rooms in the house without having to fix a transformer. (laughs) And also being able to walk in and out of your house after nine o'clock at night because you have no curfew in Melbourne anymore. You know, I haven't used it yet. <laughs> I had, I could have done it last night. I could have gone to the shops at nine o'clock like a rebel, but I didn't. Maybe tonight. All right. Well, it's fantastic to hear some positivity back in, in your voice after a very tough few months. Um, hopefully things keep going well. Um, we'll hear more about what's happening in Victoria in just a moment. We'll also brief you on the fight to save over 100 whales in Tasmania. Here's one of the rescuers describing what it sounded like in Macquarie Harbour. I sort of described it as cats meowing and then the flapping and the splashing associated with that. Whale rescue in just a moment on The Briefing. First, Jamila, let's hit the big news of the day. New South Wales police are investigating a man for an alleged fraud after allegations he ripped off a community devastated by bushfires. And this is a story you broke on the project last night, Tom. Yeah, we told the story of this woman, Victoria Herrera, from a New South Wales village called Balmoral. Um, It was hit pretty hard by bushfires. They lost 20 homes. Um, She lost her house. It was four days before Christmas. And then a few weeks later, a man came to town promising to rebuild her house. He basically presented himself as, you know, the messiah, that he was going to come in here and he was going to fix everything and and nothing was going to be a problem and he was going to keep us all safe and wonderful. So she ended up giving him $660,000 in small instalments. And then after a few months, he disappeared after only completing the driveway. How did he convince her to hand over so much money? Were there, were there proper receipts and invoices? No, there weren't proper receipts. Um, but the way he got her to hand over the money was by promising discounts on materials and that she needed to snap up these discounts fast so to hand over the money. There are also loads and loads of text messages that appeared to be very emotive. He even called her mum. So this one, he says, I love you, Victoria. Yeah, I'm always here for you. This one over here is, um, you know, I'm in Balmoral forever, Mum. I'm going to rebuild that town. I'm depressed. Yep. I will never let you down. I've I've never never lied. lied. I'm no dog, Mum. I put you in my heart. So the other thing he did to win people's trust was to get the same commemorative tattoo as Victoria and some of the RFS volunteers in that community. And it was a tattoo that helped Victoria's neighbours, Julie and Rick Anning, trust him and hand over $10,000. He came out and showed me his tattoo and told me that he had a big tattoo on his arm that he was going to be the saviour of Balmoral and he um, was here to help everybody in the village. What did you think when you saw that tattoo on someone that wasn't from Balmoral? It was weird. Did you sign any contracts? No. It was believable. Gosh, it sounds so manipulative, Tom. So where to from here? What's happened to the guy? Yeah, well, police are investigating the allegations. Um, We couldn't find him. We went to the address on his uh, licence. His mum turned up. She drove into the driveway as I was standing there with the cameras rolling. Um, She invited me inside for a private conversation um, and told me that she was really upset by his actions and that she'd kicked him out of the house and disowned him. Um, Meanwhile, Victoria... Um, has nothing left and she's put up a GoFundMe for anyone who wants to help her. Um, You can get the link from my Twitter. Victoria's case numbers are now so low that my kid can count them on one hand. And Tom, he has been doing that again and again and again. Must have been a great challenge when you guys were over 700 cases. (laughs) 
Um, I'm glad to hear it's getting easier, though. Just five new cases yesterday, so much easier to count. Um, sadly, there were three deaths as well. Premier Dan Andrews says the state's second wave is almost beaten. We are so, so close. And what's important now is that everyone keeps making that profound and critical contribution to these numbers getting low and staying low. Yesterday, on the same day that Melbourne got just a few of our freedoms back, the hotel quarantine inquiry also wrapped up its hearings. And there are some pretty damning conclusions. Here's council assisting Ben Isle. Failure by the hotel quarantine program to contain this virus is, as at today's date, responsible for the deaths of 768 people and the infection of some 18,418 others. So after 25 days, 63 witnesses, 129,000 documents, a pretty frustrated sounding council assisting, Rachel Elliard says we still don't actually know who was responsible. We ought to be able to say who's accountable for that decision. And that question is quite astonishingly still unable to be answered, it would seem, in any direct way. What we do know is that at the first planning meeting for hotel quarantine way back in March, then Police Commissioner Graham Ashton's preference for private security was made clear. Ms Elliard described the decisions that followed from there as a set of creeping assumptions. It wasn't Victoria Police's decision. We don't put it that highly. But Victoria Police's clear position expressed in that meeting has to be understood as a substantial contributing factor. The inquiry also found that three senior public servants failed to keep ministers and the Premier updated about what was happening during the process. And something that really kind of struck me, Tom, is just how quickly all those decisions had to be made. It's easy to forget what it was like back in March, but we knew so little about this virus, so little about what was going to happen, and things would just go, go, go. The whole process was set up in less than two days. Yeah, I was still blown away, though, that Jenny McCarkos didn't know till late May that they had private security looking after the people in quarantine. Um, what, what did you make of the whole thing I guess partly as a Victorian, partly as someone who's worked as a political staffer. I was surprised to see a minister go before public servants. Uh, that's not me pointing blame in any way, just usually politicians will sort of throw the public servants under the bus before they get looked at. But it seems like it was a real surprise when the health minister quit. She didn't tell the Premier first. I, I suppose, Tom, I was just, I was sad watching it, hearing those huge numbers of people who got infected, and we don't know the ramifications of that, all from this one damning, terrible error. And after four years, the court case about a Dreamworld ride that ended in the deaths of four people is over, with Dreamworld's parent company, Ardent Leisure, fined $3.6 million. Ardent Leisure was convicted for three separate health and safety breaches that exposed holidaymakers to the risk of serious injury or death. The magistrate described their safety protocols as grossly below standard. Yeah, the mother of two of the victims, Kate Goodchild and Luke Dorsett, says the sentencing won't change the nightmare that she's still living. Outside the court, Dreamworld's new CEO, John Osborne, said sorry. Arden apologises unreservedly for the past circumstances and failures of Dreamworld that resulted in the tragic loss of four lives and for the ongoing impact that this terrible tragedy has had on so many people. Months after he was cleared of child abuse charges and released from prison, Cardinal George Pell is returning to the Vatican. The 79-year-old, who was once the world's third most senior Catholic, is flying to Rome today, according to a Catholic news agency. 
Chappelle served more than a year in jail before the High Court overturned his convictions in April. His decision to leave Australia surfaced just days after one of his most staunch opponents in Rome was fired after allegedly embezzling money. All right, Jamila, we'll catch you on tomorrow's briefing in just a moment. The Whale Rescue. For the last week, there has been an epic struggle of life and death in a remote wild part of the Tasmanian coast. Yeah, teams of people in wetsuits have been wading into freezing waters trying to save the lives of hundreds of stranded whales. Very grim and overwhelming was, was sort of the way we were putting it last week, but if we said last Monday that we were going to save 108 or whatever the final count is, whales, we'd be pretty stoked with that. That's Tom Mountney. He's a Tasmanian salmon fisherman. He's been part of a group of around 60 people working to try and limit the number of deaths in what is the biggest whale stranding in Australian history. One, two, three. One, two, three. From last Monday, 470 longfin whales were discovered beached in Macquarie Harbour and Ocean Beach near the Tasmanian town of Strawn. Yeah, rescuers have managed to save around 110 whales But sadly, the rest are dead and they're currently being disposed of. So in this briefing, you're going to find out why this mass beaching has happened and why we've intervened. So let's hear more from Tom the Fisherman. Tom, can you tell us about Macquarie Harbour and how these whales have ended up stranded? Absolutely. It's just a sandbar that's inside a pretty, it's a pretty treacherous piece of water. It's on the west coast of Tassie and last week we had four or five plus metre swell. And that goes through a narrow passage called Hell's Gates in Macquarie Harbour, which is probably only about 50 metres wide, which, um, you know, encourages a fair bit of rough and and crazy weather. And then through there, there's this it's a fairly sort of beautiful stretch of water that, that runs in over this um, huge sandbank. And even boats that sometimes struggle to get past it. And these uh, 470 or whales have, um, have come unstuck. And since then, they've sort of spread out quite a lot over, you know, kilometres of distance and there's there's literally about 400 whales with their fins all up and mm. and flapping and um, quite a bit of noise as well. Yeah, what does it sound like? I, I sort of described it as cats meowing and, and quite loud and then, and then the flapping and the splashing associated with that. And you can hear the whales through the hull of the boat that are calling out to each other and, and clicking and um, and the calves that are swimming around still free swimming on the, the sandbanks that are, that are trying to communicate with their mothers. So mm. a fair bit of noise. So tell us about the process of saving them. What were you actually doing? How did you do it? Yeah, so there was a big ground crew coordinated um, to be on the sandbank in, in wetsuits and, and spending the, the time preparing the whales on mats and slings. Um, and I was one of the, the crews that was on a, on a jet boat um, nosing into those banks and, and the guys on the ground would bring the whales over to us and we'd sort of rig them up on each side of the boat and then um, and head towards the ocean. It was about a, about a two-kilometre trip taking about 30 to 40 minutes. So each round trip took a while, but um, averaging sort of 10 to 15 whales per boat per day. So over the over the week, managed to move over 100, which is pretty good. Wow. So you've actually sort of got to lift the whales up and attach them somehow to a boat. Can, can you tell us about that? What is it that you have to do yeah, exactly? Yeah, I guess more just floating them so they're comfortable um, and just securing them. So we weren't using any machinery or anything, just manhandling them to a point where they're they're not going to be able to get out and they're sort of secure to the boat and comfortable but also still you know under their own weight floating in the water and then having them in a way that once we did get to the uh 
to the release point, it was a matter of letting a couple of couple of ropes go and, and they were swimming away quite happily. Some of the calves were able to actually lift them onto the boat because they're quite small, only mm. the, the size of a, a small dolphin, I guess you'd say, and um, just a few people were able to lift them and, and keep them with their mothers and release them at the same time was, was quite good. So what did it feel like when you towed you know, a whale out several kilometres? It's, it's 40 minutes where I guess you, you're worried that anything could happen and then you finally get them out into safer waters and, and let them go and see them swim off. What's that like? Yeah, it was awesome. I think the first the first few trips was, yeah, really, really cool to see them swimming around. Obviously, they're quite distressed and still weren't in a hurry to swim towards the ocean, which was concerning watching them hanging around still. And, and obviously, we're all worried about them re-beaching, but that was another crew's full-time job just to herd them and make sure they stayed at sea. I guess there's an opposite side to this as well, and that's that 360 whales have died. How upsetting is it for you to, I guess, see these really beautiful and majestic creatures just die on mass. Yeah, it was full on, really not something we expected to see. And um, it was a hard one, but I guess, as I said before, you know, the number of whales we managed to save, I think everyone's just focusing on that. And if, if a week ago we said we were going to save 100, we would have been pretty stoked. The cleanup effort's going to happen pretty quickly, and it already has, to my knowledge. Um, the majority of it's already already done. So I think out of sight, out of mind now, and, and just focusing on the positives of, of what was a, a pretty good operation, really, out of, out of all the negatives. So when you say cleanup, can you talk us through what is actually happening now and what the cleanup itself involves? Pretty big effort by um, several of the aquaculture companies. Um, this is the three salmon farmers there that have been coordinated by... Um, by the government to use sort of their own vessels and um, piece together the whales. I think like towing them in like a long string just by their tails um, seems to be the best way. And um, there's there's a point that they've they've mapped out the ideal currents and sea sort of direction and they're, they're just jumping them probably about 10 nautical miles out to sea and hoping that they will sink or re-beach somewhere probably down south, which won't be an issue. So... Yeah, that's the current process. I think they've, they've sort of moved 100 a day over the weekend. So today, tomorrow should be should be the last of it. So pretty dramatic and emotional scenes there from Tom Mountney. Um, let's go to a marine scientist to find out why this has happened. Dr. Wally Franklin is an adjunct fellow at Southern Cross University. Dr. Franklin, welcome. Can you tell us what has happened here and why? Um, look, these kinds of strandings are not unusual. Uh, there could be several reasons. Two of the important ones are that it's possible that one or more of the long fin pilot whales were uh, ill from, uh, could be from a variety of reasons. An ill whale often will go to shallow waters to avoid drowning because whales, like ourselves, are air-breathing mammals uh, and whales must remain conscious at all times. So if they lose consciousness, they literally will drown. If that were to occur, if one of the group were to go ashore, because of the incredible uh, social bonds amongst the group, it's very likely the group would stay with that eel whale. The other reason is there could be impacts on their navigation system that led them into the trap of shallow water. And longfin pilot whales have their tooth whales and have an echolocation system which they use for communication amongst themselves and in hunting their fish prey, uh, it's not good on long distance, 
Uh, it's thought they use magnetic grids for long-distance navigation. Mm. Uh, so if they get into shallow waters, the, the, their echolocation system won't give them feedback that they're coming into a shallow area and they can get caught. Could this be our fault in any way? Is there anything humans could have done that might have caused this? I know that Macquarie Harbour is a big salmon farming site or could there be an issue with um, you know, man-made pollution that might have caused this? Um, a, a lot of people uh, feel that acoustic activity in the ocean could have an impact. That is either oil or gas, uh, sounds from oil or gas mining. Uh, we do know that acoustic effects on whales do cause strandings. That occurred in the Bahamas, for example, when the rare beak whales were stranding and it was found that their eardrums had been shattered by low-frequency active sonar. Uh, in, in the case of this stranding, I, I don't think it would be either pollution or acoustic noise. I think it's more likely one of the two first two reasons that I outlined. What, what's the reason for towing them out and not leaving them to die where they are? Well, I, I guess the marine parks people in Tasmania have made a judgment call that for those carcasses to be uh, along the shoreline of Macquarie Harbour w- would represent a health risk. Mm. Um, I, I think it's a, an astute decision to take the bodies back out to the sea because that's naturally how the whales uh, would have ended up had they died in their normal uh, domain. Experts are saying that the area is a known hotspot for whale strandings. Um, in 2011, there were 20 sperm whales that were stranded on Ocean Beach. Prior to that, in 1998, 64 sperm whales were found on the same stretch of sand. Um, yes. So we've known about that for a while. Do, do you think anything could have been done to prevent this? No, not really. I mean, what, what you've got to remember, most of these strandings are from natural causes. With regard to strandings, you remember I mentioned that these whales may navigate by sensing the uh, magnetic grids. Uh, there was a very interesting study in the United Kingdom a woman called Margaret Klinauster was interested in strandings and she had an amazing database of over 100 years of strandings around the coast of England. And she assembled that database and she also uh, looked at uh, sunspot or magnetic activity from the sun over the same 100-year period, which she was able to find records for. She found a very strong correlation between magnetic activity from the sun and strandings. So uh, that's clearly evidence that that's what may happen with uh, some of these strandings in Tasmania, that the whales literally um, have problems with their navigation because of a natural phenomenon. Why do we intervene? Why, Why did we rush into that water and try and save these whales? Is there a real point to that or are we just kind of trying to temper our own emotions by doing that? I think it's a very valuable human emotion to want to help in such a situation. But in the scheme of the whale population, it does almost nothing, right? Yeah, that's true. But it's <laughs> it's helping us humans realise the impacts that are occurring in the natural environment. And to that extent, I think it's the publicity surrounding the event and we talking about it like we are now certainly helps raise awareness And that's overall good for the whales and good for the environment. That was marine scientist Dr Wally Franklin. Yeah, and it's interesting that idea of why we, not 
not like saving whales, but why we feel like we need to save whales. And I think part of it is because they're just such relatable creatures. There's calves that have been beached with their mothers, they're herd animals, they kind of communicate with the pack. Yeah, and hearing Tom talk about the sounds and the way they speak to each other just shows the the complexity of their relationships. Yeah, I can't see us going to such lengths to say rescue jellyfish. Or cockroaches. Or cockroaches. Yeah, there's something about whales that, that are it's really relatable and sad. All right, on tomorrow's briefing, what the private school muck-up day controversy has done for the public versus private school debate. A Podcast One production.